Go Wild is a free social community created for and by hunters. Go Wild has recently partnered with Mountain Tough for a free 30-day workout program designed to get you in shape for turkey season called the Go Wild Challenge. Download Go Wild to sign up and let everyone know in a Go Wild post that you're joining us. Then, each time you do a workout, tag Go Wild and Mountain Tough to hold yourself accountable. Also, Go Wild will be attending the Great American Outdoor Show February 4th through the 12th. If you're in the area, stop by booth 412, meet the guys, and learn all about Go Wild. Visit DownloadGoWild.com and sign up today. Hey everybody, thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the Pennsylvania Woodsman Podcast. I'm your host, Mitchell Shirk, and this week I'm living a modified bachelor life. Uh, I call it modified because I am not home alone. I'm with, uh, I have my my two soon-to-be three-year-old son here, but his mother and our nine-month-old went away for a week to... There uh, to, to see my sister-in-law, spend time with them. So it's been a really interesting dynamic in my house. So the first night, uh, first night this week that we are uh, going through the motions of you know our work week and stuff. Uh, my mom offered to say she she said, "Hey, would you like us to have Lucas?" stay over at our house Sunday night. That way you don't have to bring him down before you go to work on Monday. He's just here. You can go through your thing. I'm like, yeah, that sounds like a great option. So Sunday dropped him off. That went smoothly. And I really wasn't processing what was about to happen. I got home on Sunday night and was like, oh my word, I am home alone without kids, without any, I, I slept so good, it was unbelievable, uh, the, the fact that I didn't have a two-year-old running in in the middle of the night, or my uh, my infant coming over from the crib and crawling into bed with us, or, you know, screaming in the middle of the night for something, like, it's just like, I can't remember silence and peace <laughs> like this in so long and uh you know if my wife hears me saying this she's probably like yeah you go away hunting and you get plenty of that it, it's different I, I mean this was like the first time in forever in my own home it was just such a weird dynamic but uh no it's 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 been good this past weekend i was talking last week we went out to do a little bit of hunting for the <clears throat> close of our deer season in the extended units and I got my butt kicked. Uh, we, for whatever reason, the the final week looking at my cameras out there, at, you know, and this is after the fact when I pulled cameras this past weekend, there was very, very poor, poor deer movement for whatever reason. There's a couple things that I think are going through my mind as to why that might be. Um, number one, I learned that some of the neighboring properties got a little bit of hunting pressure late. Apparently, 
It was uh, popular for some people to do a little bit of late season deer hunting. I don't, I don't know if they were hunting with a flintlock muzzleloader or just with a, a rifle trying to shoot a doe in the extended units. But I think that added pressure may have changed deer movement slightly. I don't know to what degree, but I'm, I'm suspecting that. I know the weather change has had a little bit of uh, impact. It seemed like when we had the one snow squall and changes in temperature, the uh, amount of movement changed compared to what it had been because the beginning of January it was just there was there was deer moving through this property constantly but you know one of the cool things I learned a lot uh, I walked through the property Sunday morning before I left to pull my cameras and just kind of explore some trails and avenues and places I hadn't been since you know the summer and I only did it at one time and I did a speed tour I mean there's parts of this property that I'm still like learning and soaking in and digesting and seeing it in a, a raw form like that in the dead of winter at the end of season where you've got trails beaten in and it, it looks, it's just obviously this time of year is just so much easier to determine that's getting. I learned a lot of where deer were spending more time bedding than others, how they were utilizing certain points and ridges on that property and moving through currently. And it just, uh, this whole fire was going through me on the way home and throughout this current week of, man, the things I would like to do to this property to make it go better. Because I believe even though it's like a 20-acre property, I think it could hunt fairly large. And it just has so much potential. The, the, the design and terrain sets up for good access, good hunting. It sets up well for deer to utilize it and hold deer. It just needs a couple of homey touches, as I would say. Uh, it just needs to fine-tune a couple bedding areas, fine-tune a couple travel corridors. I'd love to <clears throat> spray some of the invasive stilt grass and get rid of some of the invasives, try to create a little bit more understored spaces, and I'd, I'd love to expand the food plots so i've got all this stuff going through my head of what i'd love to do on this property and i'm also realizing a couple other things number one when am i going to get you know drive four hours out on a consistent basis and get all this work done for the following season even though i know it's only you know eight nine months until we're back into the loop of deer season again I just know how life is, especially at this phase for me. It's just very, very busy. But I'm going to try to make the most of what I can in doing things at that property. And the other thing, too, that I'm, I'm really trying to, like, encourage myself and keep in my mind that this property is not mine. It's a, it's a family-owned property. And the goals and objectives that they have, I think, are yet to be determined in some cases. And I, th I think they're open to doing a lot of things better fronting because, you know, the, the owners of this property are now new hunters. And I think they're starting to see, you know, reaping the rewards of little by little and, and how to hunt it appropriately and things like that. And I think that's going to allow potential to say, well, hey, if you're on board with this, why don't we design deer movement to be a certain way and create stand locations here and and uh, utilize the property in, in this fashion. And, and that's all good, but the, I got to keep in mind that they have other goals and objectives they'd like to use this property for throughout the year. I know uh, dirt bikes and four-wheelers are probably going to be on the horizon of this property for the children there. And, you know, I, I know walking trails and doing some type of homesteading stuff on this property is a possibility. And uh, I have zero interest in any of that, but it's not my property and I'm not paying the taxes on it. So um, I, I need to just take it with a grain of salt and 
cherish what I have with my family out there and the, the slow process it might be and the marathon it might be to build that to something really good. And if over time they completely go a different direction with that, um, I got to be okay with that. And it's, it's not worth, uh, not worth rolling, but it just excites me so much because everything I've dreamed of in a property that has a lot of it, it has a lot of what you would want as a deer hunter, a bow hunter, somebody who wants their own place and design it for you know, quality hunting, it has it. It really does. There's a couple things I'd like to see better, but, uh, you know, some of that's out of your control. Some of that would take uh, some sweat equity and time. But again, I got, I got a lot of time to do. I, I was really impressed too. I had a lot of good uh, trail camera information. I had some, some really nice bucks that made it through. They were deer that I, I wouldn't have shot during season. They were deer that were nice bucks i would say probably in that middle age like two to three year old bracket nothing that really excited me but when you look at them they go "Ooh, one more year they're going to be nice and i could think of like three or four buck that i had throughout the season on a consistent basis i know made it through and i had on, on camera in january so i'm really excited to see what they do and there was one buck in particular that's going to probably haunt me all year long and be on my mind and it's the deer that i probably have the least likely chance of encountering and it was a buck that cruised through like two or three different occasions on this property uh during like the peak of the breeding season in november into december and it was a, a bruiser of a buck he uh he was probably like a hundred and thirty class eight pointer very massive wide had good tine length and big mature body deer it was a buck that really got me excited when i saw the pictures of him i was like oh my word i would have shot that deer in a heartbeat and i think he might have made it through i had one picture of him in the middle of the night the last week of rifle season towards the end so there's a good chance he made it through i haven't seen him since uh but there's uh there's a lot of time to plan and do off-season work, and now that deer season's officially over for me, and now I'm thinking off-season stuff, and I'm thinking about the scouting I'd like to do, the the chainsaw work and you know, food plot work and pr- planning, and a lot of that's on my mind. So we're probably going to be doing some episodes here this off-season that revolves around that stuff, that revolves around scouting, that revolves around food plots. I, I'm, I'm trying to uh, do a couple episodes on uh, on food plot and and you know some some higher level food plot stuff um entry level up to higher level stuff topics that are of hot interest and some of them are just uh general management things things that you wouldn't uh you wouldn't know but i would i would talk about from an agronomist point of view and how to manage you know fertility and things like that in a cost effective way and weeds and stuff like that so i'm i'm anxious to talk about those stuff those things but uh this week is kind of like one of those episodes I'd say is towards the beginning of that um, off-season stuff, and we're talking with Dwayne Jones from Shed Season, and uh, we have a great conversation with him. He is probably about as fanatical of shed hunting as he is deer hunting in general. I mean, you can you can hear the passion in his voice with going out and scouring, you know, pieces of of 
of woodlots and properties he can hunt or can't hunt but can shed hunt and just putting the pieces of the puzzle together for hunting but just collecting sheds and then doing all kinds of really cool things with them so we catch up with him we uh we talk catch up with his general life he's he's in the process of building a home and going through the stress and moving process of that so he's uh He's definitely feeling it, uh, so I'm sure he could use uh, use a little bit of, of prayer and stress relief, but he's uh, just as fired up. He had a great hunting season. We catch up on that a little bit. We go into the, the purchasing of a new property for him. He's had for just a, just a short handful of years and the transformation of that, the, the, the habitat work, the invasive removal, food plot planning, stuff like that, and his approach to that. And then that kind of leads us into how deer utilize the property, bucks he's targeting, and the the shed hunting season that's that right around the corner and for some of us might even be in full swing and uh you know things he's he's looking forward to doing and and bucks he's targeting so it's a great shed hunting episode and and also private land minded episode so there's there's a good mix of things but I, i really hope you guys enjoy this episode i hope you guys Stay warm. I know this coming weekend it's looking brutal cold throughout most of the state. I know in my area it's like a low of low of five degrees or something like that on Saturday morning. So it's going to be brutal cold, but stay warm, stay healthy, uh, do some fun stuff with your family, do some fun stuff outside if you want to brave the elements. Uh, catch back up on the honeydew list. Uh, do something. Keep grinding. Keep at it. And uh, hope you guys have a great week. Thanks for tuning in. All right, we are rolling, and tonight we got Dwayne Jones. Dwayne, thanks for hopping on. Thanks for having me. I look forward to it. Absolutely. So you kind of said with your your daily commute and your daily job, you listen to podcasts all the time. So um, perfect stuff. So so I I always like it whenever we get somebody on the show that listens to podcasts or does podcasts because I think it, you're talking face-to-face on a computer or you put headsets on, it get, just gets real nervous and stuff when you're talking about stuff. Sure. So people that get used to it, I think it's it's good stuff. So I mean, what's what's your typical favorite podcast you, you would go for? Like if you were going to go through your your uh, your list of stuff, like what's your go-tos that uh, you want to listen to most of the time? Yeah, there, there's definitely a handful that I, that I go to a lot. Listen to Wired to Hunt. I really like mm. and enjoy everything Mark Kenyon puts out. Um, Jeff Sturgis has a new podcast. I think at first they were calling it, uh, Jeff and Dylan talk deer, uh, just habitat stuff. That's a huge, huge passion of mine. Uh, habitat podcast, um, Exodus podcast. I don't know. There's probably 10 different ones I listen to, uh, put 106,000 miles on a truck in two years and it means you're spending a lot of time in a truck. So I try to consume that stuff and learn some, something from it rather than just driving around mindlessly. So there's some good ones out there. Oh, there's a ton of good ones out there, and the ones that you just named are fantastic, uh, fantastic stuff. So when you when you go down that uh, the rabbit hole of habitat stuff, like that's a whole different aspect, especially when you're comparing like the the world we're living in and hunting in whitetails. Like I feel like now we've we've seen a shift in the in uh, in the culture that it's almost not as cool to be doing the habitat work and the the uh, the the private property stuff and it's almost like deemed it's like a lesser when you kill a buck on private land than than public land which i just completely don't agree with but it's just crazy how the culture has changed over the years and i'm right there with you like i grew up hunting private land and screwing around on you know doing habitat projects and food plots you know my my uh my, my profession is is agronomy so i mean i'm working with fields all the time so food plots just fit right in so i i would be right on board with you there 
Absolutely, yeah. I think, you know, me, me and some buddies started toying around with food plots back in 2007, 2008, uh, shortly after graduated high school, and it's just become a huge, huge passion. You know, I, I was fortunate enough myself to buy a farm when, when moved back up here a couple of years ago, and it, you know, when we first bought it, started running cameras there, and the oldest buck we had was two years old, and we started looking at it, uh, trying to decide what we could do food plot wise. And of course there's a lot more to it than that. Yeah. Uh, trying to go in and make the timber right and improve bedding areas and, um, el- eliminate, uh, invasives and stuff like that. And we pretty well have spent two years not hunting it at all and just doing the things to the habitat that we need to make the landscape what it should be. And, uh, going, you know, coming out of this season now, we just had, I only hunted the farm one time this year, more or less decided not to hunt it. The age structure still wasn't there. We had a couple of four-year-olds and a bunch of three-year-olds. And luckily, we kept the pressure off and the food was there. And so a bunch of them survived. And we're really, really excited going into next year. But, yeah, that's where a big part of my passion lies is the habitat stuff and, you know, what should be on the landscape versus what's there and how do we get it back to how it's supposed to be. So I love that stuff. Tell me a little bit more about your property. When you when you bought it, like, what's the mix-up of uh... – <clears throat> topography habitat type as far as open field all the way up to mature timber yeah so we we were fortunate enough with about 83 and a half acres um it's kind of a cool story i think like i I don't come from a wealthy family never came like came from money per se um we we just have kind of grinded it out and it was a, a perfect storm of right timing with uh we knew the family it was as an 80 year old doctor is retired. He owned uh, 254 acres, and he's very passionate about trees and, and taking care of the land. And it just got to be too much for him to handle. And we had heard that he wanted to sell a chunk of it, and we bought it off the market. Uh, we bought it under market value by quite a bit, and um, we we're able to get it. But it, it is half and half. It's so it's 83 and a half acres, and it's pretty almost perfectly half and half timber and tillable ground. Uh, so there's a seven acre field in the front big block of timber that runs through and then there's a 33 acre field in the back and then a year after i bought that my dad actually bought 40 acres that connects to me on the back side that is i it's well there's 10 acres of what was classified as tillable that they've planted in row trees um it's an old apple orchard and there's a lot of for where we live in indiana it's, it's relatively flat but there's a there is a creek ditch that runs through both properties where there's a lot of topography i mean like there's spots where you can stand up on a ridge and look down 150 feet. Um, so it, it's you know, it just like say it, perfect storm, super blessed. It, it is for me was my dream property. So we had no choice but to make it happen. Yeah, it absolutely seems like perfect storm. Probably some answer prayers there. Sounds like there's yeah. probably something working a little bit greater outside of your plans, and that's just awesome. So good for you. Um, you know, you said the the person that you purchased it from really liked trees so if if they're not of a hunting mindset i just have to come to my thoughts and say that it it was probably a more of a mature open forest is my guess so when you were uh you know going through and you know allowing the uh the ooh and ah of your property to kind of finally settle in and you could start to go to work and really dissect like what did you figure what did you think was the lowest hole in your bucket as far as what your property needed to start chipping away at first yeah so that's a good question um where we live north central indiana is primarily ag uh cash rent is high obviously you know grain prices are pretty decent and have been for a number of years so that's everything is farmed around here you know me and me and the buddies they're of the mind of wanting to 
have wildlife around and, and make deer hunting wise the best it can be. It, it's frustrating to see every year there's excavators tearing fence rows out and there's mm. less and less habitat all the time. So, um, with that being said, when we bought this and looked at it, it's like, okay, this corner beans is going to be taken out every year in October, November, and then well, there's no food. So how do we get food here? Um, how do we have food here year round? Looked at that. And then like, yeah, like you said, a lot of the timber was closed canopy, but I, but I will say they did a uh, they did a timber harvest in 2019, and in Indiana I don't know if it's everywhere, but in Indiana there's a program called Classified Forest. Um, it's it's a government program you can enroll in, and it makes your tim- it actually makes your property taxes super super low. I mean they're what we pay for 83 acres is less than a lot of people pay for two acres in town mm. because it's in classified forest, but it does restrict what you can do. Kind of, you have to have a written management plan on what are we working towards here? What, what are the things we're doing to get to that? And so lowest on the bucket food. Number one, number two was there's a lot of close canopies still. Um, this is a lot of mature timber. There's not a lot of, uh, regenerative growth, um, early successional growth, anything like that. So, it was, I got a biologist out, got permission to, to do some thinning, some timber stand improvement. Um, <clears throat> we did that and really did it in pockets. And then actually really excited about coming up in a month, we are going to do a prescribed fire, which is super uncommon here for woodlands. There's a few people here and there that burn ditches and grasslands, but we're going to take my farm, the timber ground, 40 acres, split it into thirds, and we're going to burn a third of it every year. So it's on a three-year rotation. And we have a bunch of Indiana State biologists coming, the president of Pheasants Forever. And I think we're actually going to try to get some companies on board and film it and produce it and just kind of make it a, you know, a learning thing. Like I say, and where we're at in Indiana, it's just not a common practice, but I think it's going to be awesome. I'm really looking forward to it. That is really exciting. You know, uh, prescribed fire is one of those things I think it scares a lot of people. Like, we can do it here in Pennsylvania, but, um, you know, if you uh, don't have a, a burn boss on, on site with that, then you're you're pretty much on your own as far as yep. uh, the insurance Liability. goes. Yeah, exactly. So I think it scares yep. a lot of people. Plus, it's, it's I mean, it's a lot of work, especially in a lot of the habitat types that, uh, that I have access to do it on. Um, it's just a, a little bit extra work and you're talking about, you know, fire breaks and stuff like that, but that's really cool. So I was kind of, I'm kind of curious. I was, I think you answered my, the one question I had, you, you were, you said that you had to have, or you had a biologist out. I was assuming to have a, a written plan up that probably had to be a, a, a quote unquote qualified individual for that. So, um, as you, uh, as you guys came up with that prescription in, prescribed fire did they talk about or did you guys kind of convene over what were some of the beneficial species that you were kind of targeting and in, in replacing with that prescribed fire yeah so the the program it's in is called classified forest and wildlands and it was kind of funny how me and the forester that i had out a uh, biologist and a forester the forester more is she's the one that writes the management plan and kind of oversees everything she especially initially was very much so more forestry minded than wildlands. Mm-hmm. And I would, I would kind of jokingly remind her that it's forced, you know, force and wildlands. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's really targeting like some of the stuff, especially the trees that are fire suppressing, like beech and maple, um, thinning those out. Cause there's a ton of maple on, mm-hmm. on us. Poplars, same thing. Uh, but she too, you know, had talked about oaks typically respond really, really well to fire. And, um, 
we this had gone through a, a grant. We got a grant a few years ago before we bought the farm to remove all the invasives. So there, you know, you take a walk through our property and there's very little autumn olive or bush honeysuckle or multifloral rose, anything like that. And we're hoping that to not have to go in and cut and tort on stuff every year because of the fire. Hopefully the fire will set that stuff back enough every three years that it, it just kind of keeps up with it. But yeah, we're looking forward to seeing how the oaks respond to fire. Um, and, and also to see like, you know, will it, will it top kill some of the stuff that we don't want in there to where it gets more sunlight to the forest floor? Um, stuff like that. Yeah, it definitely sounds the way you're talking about approaching your property. You're looking at it from a long-term investment for sure, because sure. Um, you know, there's a lot of schools of thought out there. And it's amazing how in the habitat world and man- habitat managers, how there can be so much um, bickering, I guess would be the word or, or have how the, the correct way to do it. And invasives is a good example. Like, you know, uh, I've been to places where the best cover was autumn olive. And then the, the theory sure. was that if you completely strip that property of all that autumn olive, then you've completely lost all the cover on that property. You, you've, uh, you've, you've basically made your property a wasteland anyway, as far as a cover aspect goes, and it's going to take time to regenerate that. But if you're, if the long-term end is going to be replacing it with with better forbs, shrubs, uh, hardwood regeneration, things like that. Um, what, what, what's wrong with that? So I, I guess I kind of wonder, uh, I, I'm assuming that was your, your approach from the beginning or your thought process going into this. When I, when I do this, I want to do it all and I want to do it the right way. Absolutely. Yep. hundred <clears throat> percent. Yeah. Just looking at like another thing she was, she was relatively against and I know it has its place and there's properties you shouldn't do it on, but like doing uh, hinge cuts, Mm-hmm. She was not a fan of doing doing hinge cuts at all, but there were areas where we did it, and some of these bedding pockets again to get hardwood regeneration, and get some of those sprouts out of the horizontal branches that are laying down and stuff like that. And again, like we've removed a lot of the cover by taking out all the invasives. Um, how do you get that back? And it's you know putting horizontal cover on the ground. Yeah, that's by instant cover. improvement. Yeah, exactly. Instant cover. Exactly. And I think a lot of places like. Uh, some of the places that I hunt out here, it's it's completely big hardwood timber, and the the problem is not uh, below ground cover. I mean, the problem is we need to remove overstory, and you know, it's simply cutting large trees that are never going to be timber, just letting them lay down creates cover and creates sunlight um hinge cutting i don't think has to be something that's done all the time but you know that's uh, that's pretty cool so um as you've uh, seen this property transpire the past few years um what's the the shift in the deer herd been like incredible honestly like you know going into this you you have dreams and aspirations and hopes for what it'll be like we talked about having kids i have young kids i hope for them to be able to take them out and them see deer you know, it's not about always killing one or having giants around, but I, I hoped that numbers would, would be there for, you know, any, any given day, if we go get in the tree stand or a box blind or, you know, ground blind, whatever, that we're going to at least see deer because at nine and 10, that's what's going to keep them wanting to go mm-hmm. is the having encounters. So, um, yeah, numbers wise and age structure wise, it, it just, it honestly almost blows me away. I've spent a ton of time the past decade in researching habitat improvements and, you know, do's and don'ts and trying to learn, learn from others' mistakes and stuff like that. And so we've kind of gone into this and, and, you know, I feel like have done the best we could with it, but to see in two years to go from that, you know, the first winter they're running cameras, having nothing but a couple two-year-olds to now next year having a couple five-year-olds, a handful of four-year-olds 
Um, <clears throat> yeah, I couldn't be happier with it. it. It's been such a rewarding experience. Do you think, uh, so, so having the property in such a short time, you're starting to see that age structure change. Do you think it's um, uh, a fact that the fact that you've had such a, a vacuum of of better quality habitat on your property and shorter that you're creating a vacuum from the, the, the greater surrounding area or, um, you, you know, is the, is the uh, hunting pressure relatively low that deer are just getting to a better age class in the first place. And now you've created something that's like, what, what's, what, what do you attribute that to? Is it a combination of things or? <clears throat> it's a little of both. Um, before we bought it, I had heard rumors that, the doctor we bought it from is one of those guys that doesn't like conflict. He wants everybody to be his friend. And unfortunately that led to, there were times, I guess what is now our driveway, uh, there would be seven, eight, nine trucks of guys there opening day of firearm season mm. and just people everywhere. So as you can imagine, as you can imagine, the herd was decimated every firearm season, you know, our, our season being two weeks, three weekends long. Um, <clears throat> When we bought this property, we also leased a lot of what he has. Uh, and although we don't really hunt it, we leased it to keep the pressure off. Uh, myself, really, myself and my dad have replaced likely 10 guys. Um, now, the surrounding properties, there still is a lot of pressure. But again, you know, we bought this property two years ago. We've, we've, for the last two years, I've had the farmer leave an acre of grain. We've planted two to three acres in, in greens, whether it's brassicas, um, late planted beans, peas, oats, stuff like that. And then a half acre plus of clover in the center of the woods that, that, and none of that's been hunted. You know, we've just, we did all this habitat work and we've just tried to stay out and keep the pressure off as much as possible. So I do think there's a vacuum, but it also is definitely from the reduced hunting pressure and there being so much pressure around that when they start getting pressured on neighboring properties, they've figured out that they can come to mind and they're safe. That's pretty cool. So as you've been able to kind of watch this develop, you're starting to see some deer that are getting to a, a four-year-old plus age class. Um, are you starting to get in and, and start to formulate um, a, a plan and kind of see things come together for 2023? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so um, we forgot to mention this earlier. This coming spring, we're putting seven or sorry, nine acres in warm season grass, a CRP program. So that's another thing here. There's just less and less CRP. There's there's almost no grasses around because cash rent is so high. Um, but, you know, I, I joke about this all the time with my wife that since I was a little kid driving around, I'd always said one of my biggest goals was to buy a piece of property and do the opposite of what everyone around here is doing. I want to take it from farmland and I want to put it back to habitat. Mm -hmm. And and so we are going to plant that whole front seven acre field and warm season grasses. And then we're going to do a border 30 feet wide all the way around the back uh, backfield and warm season grasses to like create the edge feathering, um, make better turkey nesting, make it easier to access hunting wise and stuff like that. So that's one big thing for this spring. Um, and then just continuing to build on plots. I think more than likely every year I'll probably be trying to figure out how I can squeeze in just a little bit more. Mm -hmm. So yeah, just continue to do the same stuff. Uh, like I said, prescribed fire we're doing this year, uh, nine acres of grasses. I'm going to continue with the, uh, the plot stuff. So what Looking about, forward to it. Good deal. What about from the aspect of uh, of targets? Target bucks? Yeah. Yeah, oh yeah. So last year, uh, another thing, I'm not sure how Pennsylvania is, Indiana, we can supplemental feed outside of season, so it has to be cleaned up 10 days prior to hunting the area. Um, but this time of year, it's something we do partake in, uh, and I love doing it, to be honest. It, I feel like around here, it really helps these deer recover from the rut. 
Um, when there is very limited food sources and a lot of times, you know, foot of snow on the ground, it gives them something to go to. And then, of course, me being shed season, it definitely helps hold them around to find some sheds. So last year we found nine sheds on my property, um, which for here was really good. I was tickled to death. And a couple of those bucks that I said were four this year that have made it to five, we have their match sets from last year. I'm watching them actually getting pictures of them every day. And uh, we'll have two five-year-olds. And then the one time I hunted the farm this year, I went in with, with a specific goal. There was a three-year-old that I had that was, he was uh, about 150-inch mainframe 10 with like an 8-inch drop off his base. And I was getting him a lot, and I, I had a feeling I knew where he was living. And so I slipped in one day, took a Novix Hilo in and did a hanging hunt. And I, I had no desire, obviously, to shoot him, but I wanted to see if I could encounter him. And I did. I got to film him. He came, ended up coming into 8 yards and bumping some does around and stuff. And so, although we really would like to shoot 5-year-olds, I'm not going to pass 170-inch 4-year-old here. So... We definitely will have three shooters here for sure next year, um, two of which will, we have last year's match set. Hoping, hoping to find them this year again. They're still hanging around, so we're really excited about it. Great. So that kind of answered my question. That's shed season as far as um, it, it's probably not quite in full swing yet, but we're at, the, we're at the cusp here. So what's that been like for you? So right now we are in full, like, people getting fired up about shed season. The, the time to hit the woods is not there yet here anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, it is some places north of us where they've had a lot, a lot harsher winter and a lot more snow. Here in Indiana, the, the month of January was more like late March. It was 50s and rain all month. So <clears throat> they really had these bucks spread out a lot. The, the stress level was super low. There was still a lot of food. You know, the green stuff is all around and everything like that. So it's been super warm and super low stress. Um, I actually don't have a single buck shut out yet at all still today so wow uh but knowing that the time's coming i think i was looking back through photos the other day and the first sheds i found there last year were like mid-february so we're only two three weeks from that so it, it's definitely really really starting to ramp up where people are anticipating it looking forward to it and wanting to consume shed related content this year i feel like um my conversations with other people in Pennsylvania, um, you know, if you follow a little bit on social media, maybe, um, and just my own experiences with some of my trail cameras, you can definitely tell where habitat is different across the landscape because it seems like places we had, you know, with an extreme drought this year, food sources were just completely different. The other problem we had in a good portion of Pennsylvania, uh, we had a bad problem with uh, gypsy moths and just absolutely hammered oak trees and oh, wow. just just absolutely decimated pockets of uh, of acorn production throughout the state. So you're talking about big woods up here. So we actually had uh, I, I had friends and I, I've seen pictures of bucks that were shedding in our in our rifle season, which our rifle season is always the Saturday after Thanksgiving and runs uh, two weeks then into December. So wow. it was, uh, there were some cases where it was pretty early. I know there's people that were hunting deer in our, our late season flintlock, which starts the, you know, the day after Christmas and bucks were shed out. So, uh, real, I know this, this weekend is our last weekend of the extended season. I'm going to be doing some hunting. Uh, I'm like, it's going to be like constantly in the binoculars, making sure it's a, it's a doe before I pull the trigger on anything. So oh, yeah. it's just been, uh, really crazy. So it's, it's, good to hear that you had some some normal stuff here so stuff will start to pick up for you as far as checking things out on the farm in the next two weeks 
Yeah, definitely. So <clears throat> right now I'm running a bunch of cell cameras, uh, running cameras on feed. I actually just, I sent you a picture of that, the buck that I passed that was a three-year-old this year. But uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll just monitor man, cameras. Oh, man. Yep, he's a good one. That was literally an hour ago, maybe. So, um, yep, monitor cameras. When I start to see see him pop it off there, uh, I'll, I'll look around a little bit as I go into feed, but I probably won't really look on my farm heavily until 80, 90% of them are shed out. Because like I said, the pressure's low. Most of them, especially if like, the weather is, we just had a front come in. We got four or five inches of snow yesterday and the day before, and tonight's the coldest it's been in a month. So, you know, cameras are on fire, blowing up nonstop, and they're, they're around. As long as I don't go in there and push them out, they're going to be there. So mm-hmm. no rush. Um, we'll wait until the cameras tell us to go, and then it'll be, you know, like gangbusters. <laughs> Good deal. You know, I, I think it's probably because of the the way our, our deer herd is in the places that I hunt, the, the way that they shift. Um, I just never got crazy about shed hunting, and that might sound crazy to anybody who's listened to this and is really into shed hunting. I mean, I got I know I know plenty of buddies that go on on trips annually out of state just to shed hunt, and I'm like, you know, that time of year, like I just think about all the work that I have to do. Like I've got um, you know trees to cut and um, trails to monitor, and you know clean up tree stands. That it's just all this whole list of things to do. A lot of time, it's it's uh, prepping more stuff for food plots in the spring. Like the, the list on private land for me never ends. So I just never took the time and the little bit of free time I had to actually go shed hunting, but it, it, it is a really cool thing. And, you know, as I'm, as my, I'm starting to see my kids grow, I see it's going to be a really good opportunity for me to get out with kids. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have, I have a son and a daughter. My son's 10, daughter's nine. And the last handful of years, uh, my daughter actually has been more into shed hunting than my son even. Um, just absolutely loves to go. And there's been days there where, you know, your phone or your watch tracks how many miles you put on. And when she was five, six years old and would go, we might walk eight, nine, ten miles in a day. And at the end of the day, I look at that and be like, oh, wow, I probably pushed her a little hard. But she she lo- absolutely loves to go. That's cool. So it, it is fun to get them out. And I'm actually I was in the process of writing an article this morning uh, for a blog and was talking about shed season and kind of like you know deer season's over now what and this has become one of my favorite times of the year and kind of was thinking about it this morning and and to me it's kind of like this you know when you follow these deer for two three four years and you get them to four or five you shoot them and it's bittersweet because they're not they're not there anymore you know all the pictures and the the encounters and stuff like that it's all over it's done you've killed them but with shed hunting you know you still you got a piece of them but they're still there um I don't know. It's, it's really cool to me that and, and finding them and then getting to watch what they do next year and how they keep the same little characteristics, but a lot of times are bigger or slightly different. There's just something really cool and unique to it. And I, I just am crazy drawn to it. It's, it, you know, definitely shed crazy here. What was the your, past several years? What was your introduction and what was that first time that you, you kind of flipped that switch on shed hunting? So it would have, it's been a lot of years ago, but, um, one of my best friends I hunted with when we were teenagers, same same friend I started food plotting with back in 2007, 2008. He had found a shed antler by accident when we were probably 16, 17. And um, the fact that he found it, I can remember sitting there at his kitchen table admiring this antler that he found. And, and kind of, you know, you, you know they shed out, but it's just not something that was at the forefront of our mind back then. And I just remember being completely and totally blown away by it. And immediately then we go out and start trying to find the other side. And 
that year we ended up having a couple of days, which, you know, now I realize how fortunate we were, but, you know, days where we'd go into a patch of woods in the middle of a section and find six, seven, eight sheds in a day. Wow. And it just, it, it ruined me, to be honest. It pretty well ruined me. So this time of year, that's just at the forefront of my mind and putting all these miles on the truck. I'm constantly trying to keep it between the ditches, watch, looking for sheds in the fields and stuff like that. So, so it's did, a blast. Did the attraction kind of start off just out of the, the the sheer fact of finding antlers, or were you kind of looking at it from the aspect of I'm, I'm doing this in areas I hunt and kind of also learning the land, learning the deer habits that time of year a little bit different? Like what was 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 it or was it just sure, 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 uh, truly antler crazy? Yeah, at the beginning, it really truly was just a fascination with antlers. Um, the, the finding them and, and just remember how cool it was, like I said, admiring them. And I, you know, that was it at the beginning of Fascination with Antlers. It has become, though, uh, more of just like building the story with particular deer, mm-hmm. um, building history with them, learning. You, you learn every time I find a shed, you kind of learn a little bit more. A lot of times you'll find them in beds and stuff like that, and they can tell you a lot about, you know, where the deer are living or how they're using, using the farm. So it, it has become that as I've gotten older, but it just started with fascination with antlers. That's really cool. So um, obviously with, with uh, feeding taking place on your property, um, you're holding deer, you've got a lot of good habitat and stuff. So I'm, I'm kind of curious when you find uh, sheds a lot of time on your property or any other properties that you go, is, is there is, is it more common to find them at feeding areas, bedding areas, or somewhere in between? uh definitely for us here feeding areas um like i said everything gets harvested here typically that you know farmers don't leave anything Uh, a lot of a lot of the stuff gets worked in the fall so there's there's very little food really for us being an ag state so if you can find a food source where a soybean field was too flooded in the fall they couldn't harvest the beans and so they left 10 acres of beans standing or um me and one of my best friends last year found a field that was, it was probably 120 acres uh, that was harvested. Most of the beans were harvested. They had to leave a little bit, stay up by, by the house. Again, it was too wet. And then they ended up drilling till, tillage radis into this field as a cover crop. Mm-hmm. And it was surrounded by safety zone reservoir property that can't be hunted. And we found 14 sheds in a day there. And the smallest one was probably a 120-inch eight-point. Wow. The, the biggest was probably an upper 70s, 10. And just, it almost felt fake, but that's how it is here. You find, if you find the hot food source, that's where the deer are going to be, period. End of the end of story. If you find standing grain, um, a good cover crop, if you're planting food plots, you're going to find sheds. Yeah, I, I can kind of echo that. Um, we, uh, one, one of the things that's cool about the, the section of Pennsylvania that I'm in, uh, the agriculture community in our area does a really, really good job of planting cover crops. We actually have a lot of wheat that goes to grain, which is, you know, basically uh, a food source right now. We also have a lot of um, overwintering cover crops to go to the cash crop the following year. And places with high deer density, man, there's places that I go when I'm looking at fields in, uh, in March and stuff, it's, it's just chewed down lip high and, you know, be 10, 15, 20 acre uh, ag fields in that case. And I found uh, quite a bit of sheds just in my day job and my walking and my track traveling doing that but uh the 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 trickiest part for us like i had uh i'd taken a walk last year on this mountain property that i have to hunt and i don't remember how many miles i put on that it was like a day after work i had like two or three hours to spare before it got dark and uh 
I noticed that everywhere I walked, um, I was finding traffic, but the places that I actually would find sheds were either, I, I found one last year, it was, it was a target buck we ended up killing this year, um, in a food plot, and the others were on r- real distinct not uh, points. Um, there was a couple uh, points on this ridge that a lot of the oak canopy had died, and we had a lot of thick brows, and uh, that was like my next best spot. And like I started weaving through, and I'd find sheds in those areas. And it, other than that, it's like always a, a needle in a haystack for me. Uh, I think it's just because it's it's just so different um, here, and I'm definitely not the person to be talking about uh, sheds in our area. But the, the couple I've found over the years, whenever you find them. Like there's the the buck we killed this past year. Uh, I I was thinking like what cool things could we do with that antler to go with that mount? Like that that was just such a cool part of that story because like you said I've watched that deer three or four seasons now and then to finally see the story come to a close it's it it's 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 just a truly cool experience to have that bone on the wall. Absolutely, yeah, it, it's incredible, man. That's uh. I have a buddy that has, he shot an eight and a half year old buck last, I think it was last year or the year before, and he had four or five years of sheds to him before that. And again, it's, I just, I think it's something truly incredible to have that much history with him. And he had mounted those all um, on an RH1, a product that TJ makes. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think he had four years of right sides to him. And so he'd take an old piece of barn wood and put each shed, you know, obviously ascending age up and then have the deer mounted there and uh, it's just pretty special i'll say um so when uh when you get into full shed hunting mode what does that look like to you if 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 this especially given the fact that you're dad and a full-time worker but like what what's that going to look like yeah just any opportunity that can um you, we'll do you go do a lot somebody. of other properties besides your farm? I do. Yeah, I do. Yep. There's there's a handful of farms here that for probably 10 years that we've just shed hunted. I can't whitetail hunt them. Mm. Um, but that's, again, I'll take my daughter and my son and we'll go. Um, got some buddies that I go with. But yeah, it, it'll be as of probably mid-February. It'll be most weekends and any spare second I can get, we'll be out hitting it. Um, I'm actually hoping to try and take a trip to Missouri. And maybe even a couple trips to Missouri, honestly. Um, Ty Easley from Heartland Bowhunter, he and I have been talking a bunch. And I'm hoping to get out there and spend a weekend or a long weekend with him. And then some guys from, like, Bog, Old Timer, uh, Huiman. They've got a few big, big farms out there that it sounds like we're going to try to hit mid-March. So, yeah, we'll, we'll be taking some trips. And for, there'll be a couple months here where it'll be we'll be going nonstop. Mm, mm. Yeah, like, like I said, that's... Uh... It's a whole different aspect when you think about it, just because it just opens a whole new world up. Because how many times you talk about cabin fever in February and March? I do it all the time. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Again, yeah, that's one of the biggest things. This has become one of my favorite times of the year. And because the things we're talking about, you know, right now, dormant season for trees, best, uh, really the best time to go in and cut timber if you, as long as you can identify what you're cutting. But going in and doing habitat work, reading deer sign. And getting out and looking for sheds, you know, doesn't get much better to me. So, Next to a perfect front on in late October, early November, this is as good as it gets for me. Better believe it, man. So, oh, the, yeah. you know, the however many properties that you get to shed hunt, do you get to do that in close proximity to any places that you can hunt and kind of get 
the pieces of the puzzle together on deer that you follow throughout the course of the year that maybe you go, what, what, what the heck happened when I was following him from, uh, you know, October 1 to December 31st, and then kind of get to scope the landscape and go, oh, maybe this is another piece of that puzzle. Yeah, that, that is a big focus. Um, we, we'll kind of look at, like, my home farm, look in the surrounding couple of miles, and if, if we find a hot food source, luckily here, the shed hunting has not become, it's nothing like getting permission to actually hunt. They're, most of these guys, especially farmers, want you to, to go out and find them so they're not running them over in the tractor. Mm-hmm. So most of these guys will let you go. But yeah, find a f- hot food source again, somebody that's left grain stand because they had to or something like that, and we'll get get permission. And you know, a lot of times it's it's pretty remarkable. You, you may have a buck all year long and are positive he died because he disappeared in mid-October and we'll find his sheds two miles away, three miles away sometimes. So yeah, we'll definitely focus around the farms that we hunt first. And then it's, you know, we got, we got shed fever. We just want to find sheds. So we'll go anywhere the lettuce. So when you get into shed fever, you start collecting that many sheds. You were talking about some of the products um, that uh, kind of hang them on and stuff. So like, what do you personally like to do with all the sheds you find? Yeah, luckily my wife has similar taste in home decor, so... Well, that's good. <clears throat> yeah, it, it, it's nice. So, I think I told you at the beginning of this, we're in the process right now of building, building a house. We're mm-hmm. building a barn dominium or a full barn house, and that'll be that'll be the taste. There'll be sheds everywhere, but that's kind of how it's been. You know, we got baskets full of sheds here and there, and then uh, some of the biggest ones we have are on the rack hub mounts, whether it's an RH1 for a single shed or an RH2 for a match set. Uh, got a bunch of those here, there, and everywhere. Do it tastefully, but you know that's what we love. It's our passion, so that's they're everywhere around the house. Uh, so that RH one, like, do a lot of people use that in a sense, kind of like you described earlier, like kind of that uh, leading in, like if you have a story that you've brought uh, together from a buck that you've harvested, kind of something like that to display on on with a shoulder mount. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of, you know, through shed season and rack up both on the social side, we've had so many photos and videos shared with how people have used it. But yeah, a lot of times that's what it is. You have a shoulder mount and then whatever sheds you have there are mounted on this RH1 or this RH2 where they're mounted and displayed, but you can also take them off and handle them and stuff like that. And they go right back on in place. So that's a really cool, cool way to display them. For you get, sure. Do you ever get any other creative ideas or stuff around the house as far as displaying them or utilizing them? We've kind of talked about here now building this house, like trying to throw together some a chandelier and stuff like that. Um, really haven't done a whole lot of that. Like I said, most, to be honest with you, most of them are in baskets mm. here and there. You, you know, fortunately, I have a ton of them. So unless they're big, big, they're probably stuffed in a basket somewhere. So do you do all your shed hunting on foot yourself or do you incorporate dogs at all? Um, we have incorporated dogs a little. I, I, we got a lab as a puppy that was out of a, she was out of Poplar Bluff, Missouri. And the female that she was out of was actually, uh, bred and raised and trained for shed hunting, was really good with it. And it is a hundred percent my fault. I didn't finish her out. Um, didn't spend the time with her. I should have like after she was a year or so old, she probably would find a shed, but she's definitely by no means like a shed dog or anything, but. So we're prim- primarily on foot or like if we get in a big field setting to where we're watching 30, 40, 50 deer in an evening feed in a 300 acre cornfield, we may jump on a side by side or something like that and, and ride around the rows and try to find them. Um, my job, you know, agronomy, I, uh, I've said this so many times that 
I'm an animal appreciator, and I appreciate it when they're on my plate, and that's about it. I just that's don't. Right. I just don't have the patience with a lot of animals. So, like, we have dogs, and you know, like when we first got uh, our our lab that we have, he's I think Tank is five now. Jeez, on Pete's time flies, he's five. But anyway, right. uh, we. Uh, I had this in my head that, like, I wanted to, to utilize my dog for whitetails. And, you know, I've seen people doing shed hunting and, you know, using him for, for uh, you know, tracking wounded game and stuff like that. And it's like, yeah, that sounds really cool. I want to learn about that. And then life happens, and I realize that I am not a dog trainer by any sorts, and I have very little patience right. for it. So, like, the first few weeks of that process, like, started off great. And then as it started to wear off, I'm like, this is not worth it to me. It's just yeah. That. Yeah, it's a huge time commitment. That's the biggest thing for me. I mean, it, it was fun and exciting when she was a little puppy. Like every little step where she would, you know, excel is is awesome and exciting. But it, there comes a point where it's just it's such a time commitment that just me for me personally, I just I, I just lose it. I can't st- I can't stick with it. Mm. So yeah, man, I, uh, I I'm anxious to try looking at a couple new new properties in shed hunting and i i think i'm going to go with the mindset that like i'm looking for new properties mainly for the 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 thought of just trying to learn them better in the winter time and try to have a better avenue of hunting them i uh I said before on my show you know that some of the places that i'm I'm, i have on a map that i want to do some scouting this year um i'm really focusing in i really want to kill a bear in pennsylvania with my bow and I, yeah. I think that's going to be um, my motivation this time of year to go out, um, scout, and just learn the areas. And uh, hopefully, you know, along the way, a lot of our, our hunt, hunting season, you know, it's kind of overlapping bear and deer that I can shoot a buck or a bear. So um, what better way to uh, kind of check things out when it's in the heart of shed season? Absolutely. Yeah. This is this is a, just such a good time to be out there. I, you got to be careful not to read too much into the, the, like what I would say the winter sign. Like for us right now, you know, like I, I have a two and a half acre brassica plot. And if I go in there, the sign's going to be deceiving because they're hammering the brassicas, mm-hmm. whereas they're not doing that in November. But, um, if you pay attention, you can definitely see the fall sign, you know, seeing rub lines and where they were making scrapes and where there's trails from the fall and stuff like that. And, uh, it's easy, easy to look at that and know how or where you need to make adjustments for next fall. But also, you know, you're you're in there, and if, if there's sheds there, you're gonna find them. Yeah, kind of going. I, I kind of wouldn't mind going back. You brought up a good point there with hitting Nebraska is really hard right now, and uh, you know, structuring your your property and food sources and such. You know, I I've tried to do whatever I can to keep food sources as bountiful as pro- possible. You know, from beginning of hunting season ending hunting season and trying to keep movement consistent you know i, I know a lot of, you, you brought up jeff sturgis you know he's somebody that, that talks about that amongst many other uh managers and stuff like that so do you see um the way you're, you're tinkering with your property you're kind of seeing that fluctuate throughout different parts of your property the way you have your food plot set or like what is what does that look like from uh, uh a location standpoint and how deer are moving throughout your property from October till now. Yeah. Um, it, it's, I guess, kind of constantly evolving. Mm. Um, I think I've, I've found in the, in a couple of years of owning it, that there are some constants, you know, there's some bedding areas that they use constantly, whether it's July or January, but there are, you know, some of these food plots, they're designed 
to be attractions in the fall and winter mm-hmm. period. You know, they're, they're not going to be hitting a brassica plot in February or I'm sorry, in June or July because there's nothing there. Um, and, and kind of by design, you know, like Jeff talks a lot about not building a dough factory and, you know, while like we do have clover there, we do, there's, there's, there's just so much food in the summer. I was actually going through some summer photos the other day uh, on my phone that I had saved. And if you look at all, everything that's green then compared to now, everything's a food source. They don't really need food plots in the summertime because everything's a food source. Right now is when they need food. You know, there's, there's not much out there. So it just makes perfect sense, you know, coming back to the habitat or the shed stuff. If you have the food now, you're going to have the deer, period, just because there's, there's not much food out there. So um, that's kind of the way we've structured our farm is to make sure that they're there in the fall and winter when we're going to be hunting them or when we're going to be hoping to find their sheds. And the rest of the year, it just kind of is what it is. If they're there, cool. If they're not there, that's cool, too. Is uh, is food is the way you design your food plot program also, do you have in the back of the mind a uh, shed season in, in your design in that? Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah. Got to keep that in mind. Um, th- my two biggest plots this year were an acre and a half standing cornfield, and then the two and a half acre brassica plot, and they're they're almost side by side, and they're both screened in with borderline um, Egyptian wheat mm-hmm. stuff like that. So they're hidden. There's literally you know you can't see it from any road or house. Nobody's ever back there. So super secure. And you know like this evening, I was telling you, uh, this evening's the coldest it's been in a month. And just, it was picture after picture after picture, just deer pouring out into that cornfield. And they, they kind of work across, you know, they'll hit the corn for a while and then they'll, you, I'll have them on the brass because on cameras there. But, um, yep, it's definitely structured and set up for them to be there now. And again, with like supplemental feeding, as soon as I'm done hunting and I know for sure I'm done hunting and, and my dad is done hunting, uh, we'll start getting feed out just to build some consistency. They know it's there. Uh, when they need it, they hit it and it just helps hold them closer. So that they're they're going to shut out somewhere close by. Gotcha. Do you uh, is that kind of like the icing to the cake, or do you feel like you'd still have a really good chance of of capitalizing on some sheds without that uh, supplemental feed? Yeah, I, I think we would have a we would definitely have a good chance, um, but it it does make a huge difference. There's been I would say the last three or four years I've probably found three four sheds a year at least in the feed, like in the feed pile mm-hmm. itself or within feet of it. And you just wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't have that. If, if they're out there feeding in a 33-acre cornfield, it's going to be way harder to find a shed than if they're feeding in a 10-foot circle. Sure, sure. Yep, so it's kind of the way we look at it. Exciting time of year, exciting way to keep uh... – keep putting the miles on i know one thing this time of year it's like a, a motivation that the motivation for continuing to go out aside from all the hunting is a lot of time I'm coming off the holidays i usually ate too damn much in the first place so it's like great way to get burn some calories off but man uh this has been great so hey anything uh, you want to you want to share with us um from the from the rack hub side of things shed season side of things be uh, before we let you go back to your family yeah um i would just say stay tuned uh we've got Shedseason.com. Uh, we've got a whole new apparel line coming out here in the next couple of weeks. I think today actually started a sale where everything we have currently has gone on sale. And once it's gone, it's gone. Uh, we're, we're replenishing that stuff with all new designs and we're really excited about it. We got some really cool stuff coming up there. So, um, but shed season officially kicks off for us Valentine's Day. So Valentine's Day through April 14th it is shed season and we'll be doing four big giveaways. During that time, uh, we got some incredible partners. So 
giveaway package is going to be humongous. It, it's going to be really cool. So, but follow along there. Also, like if you find good sheds, if you have a good story, share it with us. We'd love to put it out there. That's that's why we started Shed Season is just to be a community and a platform to share and consume antler related content. So definitely don't don't be afraid to reach out or send that stuff over because we love seeing it. What's the best way to uh, to follow along? Uh, Instagram, I would say. Instagram is where we're most active, for sure. Good deal. Exciting stuff. So, last question I want to leave you with. Um, it could be shed-related. It could be hunting-related. It could be anything-related. What's got you the most excited in 2023? Um, well, uh, I guess that's going to be a, a handful of things. So, I'll try to make it quick, though. So, obviously, buying the farm has been a huge blessing, and we've loved every second of that. But we, we really haven't hunted it for two years. So, going into this year... Actually getting to focus on hunting the home farm for the first time is, is really exciting. Knowing we have a couple of good shooters there is really exciting. But also my dad didn't grow up hunting. Uh, he's never really been a whitetail hunter. But here the last, you know, I would say the last year, I've gotten him involved enough in the habitat stuff that he's seen the changes. And then, you know, we've got all these cell cameras running and he's a guest on there. So he gets all the pictures and he's getting excited about it. And... I really, really look forward to this coming year getting him on his first deer. So a number of cool things happening, but uh, 2023 is going to be fun. That is really cool. So if uh, if your dad didn't hunt, how did you get exposed into the hunting community? Um, I, had, I had some friends when I was younger. I grew up racing motocross, and I had some friends that also hunted. And I guess hearing them tell stories and, and you know, kind of got me interested. And then I did have uh, an aunt and uncle that were very much into hunting and just I, I, at some point, it came point when I was 12 or 13 years old where I became interested enough that I asked to go and went one time, and that was pretty much the end of the story. Seems to be the case for most of us. It's not hard yeah. to it's not hard to set the hook for us once we get started no. with this stuff. No, that's a fact. Now, are, you, are your kids it. at a point where they're starting to hunt yet? They are. Yeah, my son shot his first buck two years ago. Actually, saying we didn't, we, I really haven't hunted the home farm, but my son actually did shoot his first deer ever nice. a buck there. Uh, last year in rifle season and getting to share that with him was, was pretty incredible. He, uh, he, he hadn't been like super consumed with it or really ate up about it, but he, he, he liked it enough that he wanted to go. And we went a couple of times and opening day of firearm season last year in 21, um, he shot an eight point there and dropped it in his tracks and instantly started balling. And it was, it was an awesome experience. Yeah, that's, well, a, that's, my life. that's the kind of stuff you want. And I, I really hope that you get to have that same experience with your dad. There's something about yeah, too, there, there's something about sharing. I mean, I talk about the camaraderie aspect all the time, and there's something about sharing it with people you love in the first place. But to me, there's also something about doing it on your own home turf that you've watched it grow, and you've, you've grown so attached to that. Like one, one thing that I don't do on public land, some people probably do, but I don't get really attached to places on public land. I have places I like. I like to venture off, but if something changes, it's just easy for me to move on because most of the time when something changes, it's human, um, it's, it's human cause, so then I just move on and I never really grow onto that spot. Um, where it's different, where a piece of private land where you've got the sole focus and you can do what you want. Um, it's an added connection that if you never get to experience, you don't know how to explain it to somebody until you, you just experience it yourself. So that's just really cool. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, there's, you know, a lot of what happens on the private land parcels like this is by design and on purpose, which, you know, makes there be more of an emotional attachment to it. And I, I could end up going on a big tangent here, but 
um, yeah, it, there's definitely a huge emotional attachment to it, and it just makes it, to me, that much sweeter and that much more special. So we're looking forward to getting to spend some time out there on it for really the first time ever this year. And, and there's nothing wrong with that emotional attachment either because there's a lot of positive that comes back from it. But you talk about going on a tangent, I could easily do it because there's an ugly side to that too. Like the sure. the, It's so easy to get so emotionally attached to a specific deer. And yep. that gets ugly. I've I've seen I've seen cabins break up in 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 our area. I've seen um you know just just friendships and because of a of a of a stinking deer of all things a four legged critter that lives on average two to three years and that's all it lives. It's it's replaceable. It's a population that keeps turning, but it's just one deer can can change everything. Sure can. Yep, I've unfortunately seen it many times too, and just try to keep ourselves grounded. Like I say, luckily we uh surrounded with some really really great dudes and you know all of us try to be pretty level-headed about it and at the end of the day you know it's a deer they can go wherever they want and that's exactly what they do in november so there's definitely no guarantees exactly grant woods is, is one of the people i admire the most because he's somebody that talks about hunting individual deer and appreciating individual deer he says it all the time you manage for populations and it's there's always going to be another one to fill that void and there's no yep. reason and i just i love that it's always stuck with me since i you know i started following along absolutely me too man Good deal. Well, hey, good luck in all your shed hunting. Uh, Good luck with everything going on between uh, between the the new house and uh, and family. Uh, Really looking forward to the stuff you're putting out, man. Same to you, brother. Keep in touch for sure. Likewise. Take care. Yes, sir.